0: So you're there in Luke chapter 2, and we're, we're going to read through the text. If you weren't with us last week, we're just walking again through Luke's cha- Luke uh, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we call it simply Christmas. And so we're unwrapping, uh, kind of getting past the trappings and the pretty paper of, uh, of Christmas that often kind of clouds the, just the core meaning. And we just want to see the Christmas story in all of its beautiful simplicity. And that's what we're doing uh, these weeks. And so we're there in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Uh, many of you remember Andy Rooney. He was a CBS reporter for many, many years. He, I, I knew him just from sixty minutes and he would always have the uh, i forget the name of the, the segment, but he had the segment that he had for many, many years. And, but he once responded, there was as, as if this was the case back when he was reporting he's, he's now he 's died several years ago now. but the journalists are always are often accused of only covering the negative side of the news, and again, if that was the case then, I can only imagine. How appropriate that is now, but the, the bad news. So, so, but he, he cleverly imagined a newscast where only good news was reported. And so the news consisted of reporting on planes taking and landing off safely on schedule. Um, or in, in Florida, the orange crop was hit by another night of average weather. The oranges just hung in there and grew. Uh, or in Detroit, General Motors announced that 174,000 Chevrolets would not be recalled because there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Uh, so his point is, was that good news is sort of boring. Uh, it's not that interesting. It's not newsworthy. Well, we are this morning. We're looking at very, very good news, but it is not boring. And 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 we see this in this announcement in chapter two there of Luke chapter two verse ten. this angel announces to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I mean, this is incredibly good news. But there there are a couple factors that make it difficult sometimes for us to understand the greatness of this news that it was being proclaimed. One, we're so familiar with the Christmas story. I mean, this is probably one of the most uh, familiar stories, widely known stories in history. I mean, you've been standing in lines at stores throughout this week and maybe eating in restaurants, and you hear these glorious truths of Christ coming uh, in the songs as you're shopping along with other songs that Christmas songs, sillier songs, but you hear these these beautiful songs capturing the meaning of Christmas sung and just kind of as white noise while you're shopping and we hear it for about two months out of the year nowadays um, and, and so as a result many people even Christians we just kind of shrug it off and it's it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem especially exciting or relevant to us it's just kind of background noise Another reason I think we, we miss the greatness of this news is because we, we forget, or some don't even realize or know, what serious danger we were in before Christ came. Uh, we, we, we forget the backdrop of the bad news. That's what makes the good news so good. We, we lose touch with the danger we were in with regards to our standing before God and, and and our eternal destiny, and so we read the familiar story that there was a savior born in Bethlehem many years ago, and we kind of yawn and say, "Ah, oh, that's nice." Pass me the ham. I mean, so so because we forget how desperate our need for salvation was, we fail to appreciate the greatness of this news of the savior's birth. And so, for those reasons, but let's try, and I'm pray, I've been praying this week that we would we would again just with fresh eyes and hearts full of faith just embrace again the greatness of this news that Christ has come our Savior and so we're again we're unwrapping Christmas to see it in its simple form and 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 so that we can see past its familiarity and its kind of sentimentality and so that we can love and trust and worship Christ the Savior together and so we see the good news of Christmas. And we've been singing about this. I didn't really think about this. But how many, how many songs and Christmas carols, new and old, pick up on this theme. But, but those, the ironies of Christmas. I mean, how ironic so much of the story is. And Luke's account is just dripping with this irony. It, and he wants us to see it. Irony, this is Webster's Dictionary definition of irony. It's a situation that is strange. Because things happen in a way that seems to be the opposite of what you expected. That's an irony. And so here, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the very Son of God, the the promised Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. He's, He's touching down on planet Earth. What do you expect that to be like? Not the way it actually is. In fact, we we expect fanfare, we expect pomp and circumstance, we expect pageantry, but there's anything but that. And so I want us, again, just to revel in the the goodness of this news as we just see some of these ironies real quick, and we're just going to walk through this passage and and note these, um, and then we're going to continue to sing and we'll eat and drink at the table. So the first irony that we see in this account, we'll see in the first few verses here, is the the timing of Jesus' birth. The timing of His birth. Look at verse 1, Luke 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up. We'll stop there. So he went up and we'll see with Mary... To be registered, and so Mary's in the final days of her pregnancy at this point. And I, I realized we weren't here last week, but you go back to chapter one and you see the angel's announcement to Mary. She's going to have this son, and all that transpired. So she's in the final days of her pregnancy. Joseph and Mary are married, sort of. Uh, they're they're married, but the marriage hasn't been consummated. It won't be until Jesus is, until after Jesus is born, and and so she's still called. See in verse five, his betrothed. And and so, much more serious than an engagement, like married, but again, not consummated yet. And so the, the circumstances of Mary's pregnancy are unusual to say the least. And very difficult. And it brought all kinds of challenges and difficulty to Mary, carrying this child, being an unwed virgin. And so, now this though. She's about to give birth, and now her husband and she have to travel a great distance to Bethlehem for this census. And so, listen, it's not that Mary and Joseph thought uh, they're trying to kind of arrange the circumstances to put together this plan to make sure that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. They've been singing these carols all they were growing up. And they say, all right, we've got to make sure that we get to Bethlehem. And so that's not it, obviously. And so they're just dutifully obeying the pagan emperor's orders. That's all they're doing. She just happens to be in her ninth month of pregnancy. She's ready to give birth. She does. They don't want to be separated from one another, so she travels with Joseph. And, and so the, the timing, the circumstances, are, again, they're just dripping with that irony. You have, you have Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world. He's Julius Caesar's uh, grandnephew. And so he's, he's Mr. Power, Mr. Authority, Mr. Get-it-done. His Word goes always, Period. And so, he issues this decree to all the world, all the Roman world, which was much of the world, that, that they must take part in this census. And so, in, in Rome, they took a census every 14 years for military and tax purposes. And so, it just happens to be that time. And, and so, every Jewish male was required to, to go to their ancestral home to register. register name, occupation, property, all that kind of stuff and and family. So so here again what's so ironic about that? Well it just so happens again that Mary and Joseph are going to have to travel to Bethlehem to register. That's Joseph's ancestral hometown. And and it just so happens that Mary's pregnancy comes to full term as they're having to travel to Bethlehem. And it just so happens that that's exactly where Jesus needs to be born to fulfill prof- biblical prophecy. This is where the Messiah, savior, the king would be born. And who seems to be responsible for all this? This pagan emperor and his little regional regional administrator, Corinius. And so but who's really in charge? God is. He's orchestrating the, the timing of this. So when Caesar Augustus sent out his order, he had no clue that God was forcing the fulfilment of his own redemptive purpose in this decree. And so, Warren Wearsby said, Caesar was ruling, but God was in charge. And that's it. Even the, even the greatest empire on planet Earth was subservient to the will of God. And, and, and brothers and sisters, that has not changed. Joseph and Mary, they, they may have felt like they were pawns in the hand of mighty Caesar Augustus, but in reality, Caesar Augustus was a pawn in the hand of Almighty God. And He was moving His people and, and, and working through them. And, and, and I would just say there's great encouragement to us. Your times, brothers and sisters, are also in God's hands. I, I know we, we struggle with this. and, and you, Have you ever had those moments in your life where you, you think and you ask, Lord, why now? Why, why now? I mean, you had to know Mary and Joseph for asking this question. Why, why now? Why is this happening right now? This timing doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, Bob Smith was texting me about the condition of his mom uh, yesterday. And I just responded and prayed for him. Brother, I know the timing is so hard. The Lord will give grace. But, you know, your mom's dying and your son's getting married. And just, ah, oh, timing seems so off. But, but just think, our times are in God's hands. You, maybe, you, maybe you land a job, your dream job finally. You're due to start work on Monday. And on Sunday afternoon, you're in bed with the flu. Oh, now? I mean mean, that seems too trivial, but you're you're starting a family, you're young, you're newly married, you got your first child on the way, and you get a report, you got cancer. The timing. It's hard. Listen, God is sovereign over the flu, and he's sovereign over employers, and he's sovereign over cancer, and he's sovereign over spouses, and he's sovereign over children, and he's sovereign over emperors, he's sovereign over everything. He he will use people and circumstances and legislation in this case uh, to do His bidding because He rules over all. There, we, we can't always see how God uses these things. And we, we don't always have it written out for us like this and see it this way. But we know that He reigns over over timing. Over millennia and over the nanosecond. Big and small chunks of time. He is sovereign over it. And so the... So this is the point. It's, it's ironic that God would use this pagan emperor's decree to move His Son in utero to Bethlehem so that He could be born there. There's something totally unique about Jesus and in his, in his birth, but there's something totally normal about God economizing on the, quote, decrees of man. He is, he is sovereign over that second irony that, again, it just helps us to unlock and see the beautiful goodness of this news is the the place of Jesus' birth. Look at verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And so this was a good little trek for Joseph and his and his pregnant wife. And so they go about 90 miles, probably 3 to 5 days for them to travel to Bethlehem. And so they go from Nazareth, which was we talked about last week is kind of the wrong side of the tracks. So they go to Bethlehem, which is nowhere near any tracks. I mean, this is this is just out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're we're as a family. We're getting in the van today and starting to head to our Bethlehem, Brooks' ancestral hometown, uh, which is way out in the middle of nowhere. And unless you, if you didn't know us, you would have never heard of this town, Jayton, Texas. I mean, it's it's off the beaten track, a uh, beaten path. And so, so here, but that's Bethlehem. Bethlehem's this very little town. It's a village. This is a small little village. It means house of bread. It's Breadville, and and and. And so, I mean, it sounds like this place of tremendous significance, right? Ooh, they make bread there. That must be a really important place. Is it not like the seat of Roman power or anything like that? No. So why would Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, be heading to Bethlehem of all places in Mary's womb? Well, why, not? why not Jerusalem? Why not Rome? Why Bethlehem? And some of you are already thinking, I know the answer because you know your Old Testament. Micah 5:2. I mean I mean Bethlehem humanly speaking was nothing. Just a little backwater village, but it's very significant in God's economy. I mean this is Rachel died there, Benjamin was born there, Genesis 35, Ruth married there, but chiefly it was the city of David. 1 Samuel twenty six. David was born there. David tended his sheep in the fields surrounding that little village. His family records were kept there. He was anointed as king over Israel there in Bethlehem. And so this this little town of Bethlehem it wears very big shoes. And so the, the, this this humbleville it's this messianic focal point in redemptive history. And so the little little town of Bethlehem it's designated to be. The drop zone of God incarnate. This is where he'll come. Micah 5 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so, on one hand, we think, well, that doesn't make any sense. But on another hand, you say, that makes perfect sense when you understand philippians too and you understand what god was doing and sending his son into this world so the messiah is going to be born in bethlehem joseph and mary have to go a long way to get to bethlehem Uh, so how is how is god going to get them there how is he going to get them there so the messiah can be born there and again god says no problem i got this i got this Roman emperor, he's got these little Syrian uh, governor, and, and they can help me, and I've got Jewish administrators who are going to say, you know what, the best way to pull this census off for the Jewish people is to get them all to go back to their hometown, because they have all their records kept there. That's the best way to do this. It wasn't done that way in the rest of the Roman Empire. It's not like every other Roman citizen had to go home for the census. This is only for the Jewish people. But again, you see the Lord's providence in all of these details. I just, again, do you you ever wonder things like, Lord, why do you have me where you have me right now? I don't want to be. I I saw myself being somewhere else, this place in life. But again, God has no problem getting people where He wants them to be. God is in control of the timing of our lives, God's in control of the places where we live. So we, we trust Him. And so, so, the, so the timing of His birth is ironic. The place of His birth is ironic. It's nowhereville, but it's front and center in God's redemptive plan. And that brings us to the, the third irony that we see in verses 6-7 to seven, is the manner of Jesus' birth. Just the manner and the flavor of it. Look at verse 6. It's a, it's almost, you, you blink and you miss the birth. But, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So Jesus is born, and we just what oh, it happened, okay? But that's not Luke's point. He he's emphasizing these details. You note that he's he's lying in a manger in an animal feeding trough. In some stable or some kind of cave or something where they kept animals, and there's no place for them in the inn. Now, when you think inn, don't think like Holiday Inn. Um, this is the, even the inn in that day was was very primitive to what we think of uh, in terms of lodging. The difference between a room and a house and where the animals slept was really not that great. Um, but still, there was no place for them in any kind of formal inn. And again the irony is just thick there. It's just it's dripping. After you read verse 7, you should stop and just ask, "What?" Well, what are you talking about? King of kings, Lord of lords, Messiah, the promised one, and there's no place for him? Are you kidding me? He was just born in a cattle stall and laid in a feeding trough? Messiah! Whew. Plus manger. That's, that's something doesn't compute here. Mary's firstborn son is the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1. And when, and when he says that, that's it, not saying he's the first person ever born. It's just it's talking about preeminence. He is the one. The ultimate one. And so her firstborn, the firstborn, is born in a stable, laid in a feed trough. That's strange. That's, that's ironic. And that's, that's not what you'd expect. Knowing, knowing what we know, what should His entrance into this world have been like? Not that first part of Philippians 2, but that latter part. Something that will become reality in a second coming. Where every, every mouth is confessing, every knee is bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it, we would expect. That's what it, we say it should have been like. But that's not... That's not what we have, instead we have, you know, a of sheep in the background. So what what does this ironic manner of Jesus' birth tell us? It just speaks of grace. It's grace. It's the grace of God in the condescension of His Son. I mean, stooping, God humbling Himself for our sakes. What grace. God stooping down. I mean, listen. It would have been... He would have been stooping down if He came to Buckingham Palace. The gap between the throne of glory and the most luxurious dwelling that's ever existed or ever will exist on this planet is would be an... There's an infinite gap between those two realities. And And yet, here... But this though, King of kings, Lord of lords, glories of heaven, and he's in a feeding trough, in a stall. That's crazy. Verse 8, And in the same region there were, what, kings? Priests? Pharisees? Scribes? Rulers? Philosophers? No, there were shepherds. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, an angel appeared to them <laughs> shepherds they're like they're like the lowest of they're just stinky shepherds, they're just kind of average working class nobodies It's you and me they're just they're just shepherds, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear and this this is another irony and the, It's just these plain, average, working class sinners. They're chosen to be the king of kings welcoming party. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's just the word gospel. Good gospel news of great joy. That's what gospel leads to. That will be for all the people. There's another irony that the good news is not just for the great people. It's not for the elites. It's not for the, the, the doers and the movers and shakers of society. It's for you and me. It's, just for, it's for all people. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This day is born in Bethlehem the Savior, the One who will save His people from their sins. Who's Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate coming king, the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, those Messianic prophecies? He's the greater David that the Lord promised. He's the Christ, and He is the Lord, the sovereign God. That's who we're talking about when we read verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. So, do you see what? you see that transposition? How do you was born this day? A savior who is Christ the Lord. Where they're looking? All right, where's the lights? Where's the you know the the band, the, the big uh, castle and the thrones and all of that? Where's the shiny stuff? And they say this is going to be the sign. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swallowing claws and lying in a feeding trough. Without verse thirteen, we're saying what? That's the sign. But then you get to verse 13. But what are we showing is that the circumstances of the sign, they don't fit the pedigree of the child. There's irony here. But we get it in verse 13. Verse 13, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now that's a sign. I mean, we're talking hundreds, possibly thousands, of these glorious angelic creatures. Then it's not like the children's book where it shows you know one or two you know uh, angels in the sky that that kind of thing. No, this is this is unbelievably glorious picture. And there and there's another irony even in that statement, that announcement. I mean, you have Augustus. If you know anything about the Roman world, my kids have been studying Roman uh, life and culture in school right now, and. And so we've been talking about these things. But you have the Romans, and Augustus in particular was praised for that, the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. And so he, he ensured peace for, his, for that empire, and that was by conquering, sometimes by force, but providing for needs and, and overseeing the, his, his empire. And so he's the king, he's the lord of lowercase, he's brought peace on earth in that region that he's got governance over. But here, these angels are announcing here is, here is the One who's come to bring peace on earth. Jesus is King of kings, and He truly brings peace. Jesus came to bring the, the pox, the peace that goes way beyond Romana. I mean, this goes to the ends of the earth for all eternity. Colossians one nineteen and 20, we get, we get a fuller picture, and there's so many places we could look in the New Testament to see this, but In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so, the incarnation in and of itself wasn't going to bring peace, but but thinking about the implications of the incarnation and where Jesus' life was headed, we say, there's going to be peace on earth. I mean, and we have this eschatological peace that we're still anticipating, but we look at the whole of His mission, and He came to bring peace. And then we see some not-so-ironic details. Verse 15, let's just read through. "When uh, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. You better believe they said that which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as they were told. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. So they're explaining it. They're talking about the glory and the angels and the peace and the good news of great joy. Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. You know, Just mouths agape. But Mary treasured up all these things. Pondering them in her heart. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? I mean, but but it's not. She's she's a thinking, reverent teenager. We saw that last week, and she's she's a, but she's a teen mom who's just given birth to the Messiah, her Savior, her Lord. And and there's a there's a lot racing through her mind, all these ironies. But you just, you just we don't under we don't know for sure what she comprehended of what was her son would was come to do. She knows, her, she trusts that He's the Messiah, she trusts He's the Savior, but did she understand what His future would be and how that work would be carried out? To what extent, we don't know. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. One last irony, and this isn't explicitly from the text, but it's again, it's, it's, this is what Luke's, if we had time to read the whole account of Luke's gospel, this is what he's driving to. And there's the irony of the purpose of Jesus' birth. The purpose of his birth. Jesus was born to die. And how strange is that when you think about it? I mean, if you have a friend that's give, just given birth to a child and you go visit them in the hospital, you're not, you're not saying, how do you think this kid's going to die one day? I hope you're not saying things like that. That would be a little twisted and sick. But, um, but here we're we're this is what Luke even has in view. Remember, Luke's he's not writing this account as things are happening. He's he's looking back after Jesus has ascended to the Father, and he's writing this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he and he has the end in view, and that's very clear with what he chooses to record. And so he's he's moving us not to that. He's moving us to the table and what we remember here. But because we're not just talking about any baby, we're we're talking about one who's destined not just to die, but to die a unique death. Why did Jesus come? To present God to us, yes. To to teach truth to us, yes. To fulfill the law, yes. To offer the kingdom, yes. To to to, to reveal love, yes. To bring peace, yes. To heal the sick, yes. And so many other things. But the primary purpose of his earth and was. His birth and His life was His death. Jesus came to suffer and die. Bethlehem happened so that Calvary could happen. He was a baby so that He could become a man and die for our sins. One commentator said this, Those soft baby hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made in order that nails might be driven through them. Those chubby feet, pink and unable to walk, were one day to walk a hill and be nailed to a cross. That sweet head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed in order that someday men might crush crush into it a crown of thorns. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling claws, would one day be ripped open by a spear to reveal a broken heart. And that's exactly why God made that body. Jesus was born to die. And so what we see is Jesus' death was not just some kind of unfortunate ending to a good life. That's how many will want to talk about Jesus. But that's not true. It was why He came. It, It was the predetermined plan and purpose of God from the beginning. This is why Jesus came into this world. And that's very ironic. King of kings, Lord of lords, born to a virgin, knew no sin, predestined to be crucified. And He died. He died for you. And He died for me. God loves you. and He he, he loves you. And He sent His own Son into this world to die for your sins. To take the punishment that you and I deserve. And that we could never pay. And yet He... He didn't state it. He rose again on the third day. And this is where everything's moving. He rose on the third day. And, and it guarantees then, He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. That if we believe in Him, if we trust in Him, we, can, we will not perish, Scripture says, but we will have eternal life in His name. I mean, this is the gift that is held out to us in the story of Christmas. It's this Savior who was born to die and rise again and He holds out to us life eternal. Have you trusted in Him? Are you trusting Him now? Uh, do you know that eternal life that Christ came to provide? And if you haven't, I pray that you would today. Just confess, I am a sinner. I, I cannot pay for the sins that I've committed. I need grace. I need what Christ has done for me. I need the forgiveness that He secured. I need His death in my place. I need His life for mine. And trust in Him and cry out to Him today. And please talk with one of us if you would like to, to hear more. Alright, so, so we see this account of Luke 2, this glorious story. And then what happens with, just take the shepherds. So it's, into the, it's kind of anticlimactic. The shepherds went back. They just went back. Went back where? To do what? I mean, how do you just go back? After seeing this multitude of heavenly hosts and seeing your God, your Lord, your the promised Messiah lying in a manger, but what are they going back to? Are they going to sign a book contract or something like that, and you uh, know, speaking tour and show up on the Today Show or Jerusalem, you know, this morning or something like that? I don't know. No, they they, they, they just went back to their sheep. It's kind of a letdown. All the incredible things they saw and heard and experienced, and, and they went back to the routine job they were doing before. They, they went back to their jobs. But praising God for His grace, proclaiming the good news to people. And I think there's some... I mean, God's, God doesn't call us to some spectacular, flashy, constantly thrilling life. He calls us to, to trust Jesus. To 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 believe the Savior and and and, and so he, and then he sends us back into our routine to 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 learn to rejoice in Him and His great salvation day in and day out. That's what He's calling us to. This is this is good news. This is unbelievable. This is the best news in the world. Again, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How do we respond? Well, there's many ways to respond. I just say one, we're going to respond and we're going to come to the table. We're going to remember that purpose. But also, we sing. I mean, you notice all the singing associated with the incarnation. There's just all kinds of singing that's associated with with his birth. And I just say, even as we sing now in just a moment, fight the tendency to, to kind of slip back into just the mindless mouthing of words and and engage in praise that is in accordance with God's excellent greatness and what He has done in sending Jesus. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank You for our time this morning. Uh, the time that we spent contemplating and considering these wonderful truths with with open Bibles, and I pray, Father, with open hearts as well. Uh, we're, we're so grateful to have this morning now culminate in us taking the bread and taking the cup together, remembering Jesus' great work of redemption together. And so I pray that You would help us think deeply and clearly and biblically about the significance of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Keep us, keep us near the cross and the empty tomb as we eat and drink and worship. Jesus Christ together, our hope, our Savior, our Lord, our Messiah. Help us to rest in Him, not in our own efforts or striving. Oh, Father, fill our tongues now with Your praises as we, again, just sing out and adore uh, You who sent Your Son into this world to die for our sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.